Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Politics, politics, politics. The presidential debate was last week, and man, oh man, was that fun to watch. I don't think I've ever watched a debate for an election that far in advance, but it certainly did meet expectation and in some ways exceeded them. I think we saw the beginning of the end of the serious nature of Trump being a presidential contender. I think he's going to be a candidate for a while. And unless something changes, and those changes being him actually prepping for a debate, bringing some specifics with him, and actually caring about the details, unless those things happen, he's not going to be the candidate. I still say it's likely to be Jeb Bush. John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, was very good in that debate. Marco Rubio was pretty good in that debate. Rand Paul, Mike Huckabee, um, Chris Christie, a lot of those guys are kind of lumped in toward the bottom. You know, we'll see what happens. Christie created a couple of ripples. Ted Cruz is near the top. I just don't think Ted Cruz is going to be the nominee, though. But he's near the top. And it was interesting Donald Trump is is fascinating because he says exactly what he thinks. And here is a theory. I was telling some friends of mine about this uh, a couple days ago. Donald Trump has, in effect, acquired the GOP and the Republican nomination for president. He has gotten it by way of hostile takeover. Think about this now. Trump is the front runner in the polls early on. I saw Frank Luntz say this morning that he's likely going to keep somewhere between 15 and 18 percent of the voters on the Republican side. Like he's going to keep that following a following of people that don't care a whole lot about where he is on policy. They just like him. They like his brash, you know, just say what I feel kind of approach. So now that means he's going to be in every debate because he's got the numbers that justify him being there. So you're going to keep hearing from him. He has been saying consistently that the Republican Party has been nice to him. And he was on uh, doing an interview with Don Lemon from CNN, and he talked about how they're nice to me. If they're nice to me, you know, I won't go that way. I'm a Republican. And he keeps using the phrase nice to me. In other words... If you guys don't treat me with disrespect, I'm not going to blow up your process. Now, Trump is like Ross Perot. He's a billionaire. He could write a $300 million check like that to self-fund. Doesn't need anybody else's help. But you know that there are people across the country that like a lot of what he says, and they're not bothered by the mistakes or the gaffes along the way. They like the guy. So that's enough for him to say, you know what? I'm not going to get out of this. You guys have been mean to me, so I'm going to run as a third-party candidate. Now, obviously, this only benefits the Democratic nominee, and that's going to be Hillary Hillary Clinton. It's not going to be Bernie Sanders. It's not going to be Elizabeth Warren. It's going to be Hillary Clinton. So you could see Bush, Clinton, and a third-party candidate again And the third-party candidate basically guarantees that Clinton will win. Because the votes are going to be split. He's going to take votes away from the Republican, which makes the Democrats stronger, he being Trump. 
So this guy right now is the most powerful man in politics because he alone can decide what happens with the presidential election next year. Now, you think about that for a second. And this is why the party bosses on the Republican side have been careful because they know they don't want to anger this guy. They were careful to come out and be very nice, very delicate about his performance. Now, Trump shouldn't have gone after Megyn Kelly. She's been taking a pounding from people on social media. And my thing is she did her job. She did her job. She's supposed to ask tough questions. And listen, even if there's a gotcha question in there, let me tell you something. I've actually conducted debate prep and interview prep with electeds. And I can tell you, you never blame the media person, especially if you walk into a fight, quote unquote fight, knowing what it's going to be. You have to be prepared for that. And when they give it to you, you give it right back. You don't go after them personally because you lose. So blaming her, it's like, what? And of course, things that happen in the past are going to be misconstrued or could be misconstrued. It's what people do in politics, man. Let's all be grownups. There's another debate, a CNN debate that's coming up next month. That is going to be something. I'm actually thinking about like doing a debate watch party, right, in Baton Rouge. I was talking with the membership director or liaison at the Camelot Club in downtown Baton Rouge. And maybe we'll do something that night. I'm thinking about it, like, because it's entertaining. Now, you think, now, all Trump did, 24, think about it, 24 million people watched that debate. 24 million people. That's how much interest this guy drummed up. Because let's face it, if he's not in this, how many of you out there would be watching it? I was texting with people all debate long. I had like three or four group texts going on at the same time. People texting me, rushing to get home to find out what time it was going to be on. Like it was like it was a great movie or, you know, a game or something. So this is going to be one exciting period. Speaking of politics, our guest on this week's edition of the Clay Young Show on podcast225.com. And by the way, keep on hitting that subscribe button. Keep telling your friends about the show. Spread the word. Our numbers are great. We need more. We need more. We need more. So tell more people about us. Share the word about what we're doing here at the show. And uh, and, and we appreciate it. It's always going to be free. We're not going to charge for the show. There are podcasts who've done that. I'm not doing that. So keep the word out there. Now, as I was saying, our guest on this week's edition of The Clay Young Show is Louisiana Lieutenant Governor Jay Darden, who is one of the candidates for governor as we speak. Three Republican candidates, one Democratic candidate. And he'll talk about his candidacy for governor. He's going to talk about what he's doing as lieutenant governor. The session from last year, he'll talk about Governor Jindal. He's going to we have a very interesting exchange about. The school superintendent, uh, Jay speaks his mind, as as many of you who know him, you know that about him. And I think you will enjoy the conversation. So a quick break and then we're back with Lieutenant Governor Jay Darden here on The Clay Young Show. Promote your business or organization on Podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. 
Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Clay Young and John Conroy. John's the founder and owner of Pest Stop Do-It-Yourself Pest Control. We know that a lot of people are coming back from summer vacations. And in addition to clamshells, you may be bringing something else back with you, John. Yeah, you may bring some bed bugs. How do you deal with that? Because these jokers are nasty, right? Well, well, they really are. And, of course, the first thing you want to do is you're thinking, okay, i gotta throw, got to throw away my mattress. i got to throw away my furniture. Mm-hmm. And you really don't. You know, it, a one-can solution is not going to work. I can promise you that. Okay. It is a very detailed process, but it is definitely a do-it-yourself job. Yeah. But you want to target not only the adults, but the eggs. And so we can help you ex- knowing exactly what products to use mm-hmm. and how to do it. And it's great. So you've got what we need. Where do we come to get it? In Metairie, we're located at 3512 Severn Avenue next to the Pepper Mill. On the North Shore, we're at 1417 North Highway 190. That's in the same shopping center as Sherwin-Williams. On the West Bank, we're on the Palco, just past the Harvey Bridge. And in Baton Rouge, we're at 806 O'Neill Lane. Welcome back to the Clay Young Show. Lieutenant Governor Jay Darden back in the chair again when this podcast journey started. A few months ago, he was guest number one, and 25, Jay, seems to be a significant number, so I felt like, got to have number one back for 25. I'm glad to help you celebrate your anniversary. Congratulations. (laughs) So you got uh, a lot going on as of late on on two fronts. Obviously, the biggest news is that you're running for governor of Louisiana, but you're also the lieutenant governor with a full-time, you know, list of priorities that you're that you're doing. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the campaign. Let's start first with your role as lieutenant governor. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? Well, obviously, we're continuing to promote Louisiana every day, and we're looking for 2015 to be a, a fourth consecutive record-setting year. We won't know that, obviously, till next year, but uh, all indications are this is going to be another great year for tourism in Louisiana, mm-hmm. and we're Uh, We're doing everything we can to convince people they need to be here to to visit. Uh, An exciting announcement this week, uh, actually, uh, uh, the camps at Fountain Blue uh, that were wiped out in um, Hurricane uh, two or three years ago are finally ready to be brought back online. You know, we've we've talked about this in the past that we – uh, because of what the governor of the legislature has done in the past, they've taken all the money that was supposed to be dedicated for the repair and maintenance of state parks and not let us have that money. So we've literally had no money uh, for basic repair and maintenance, so we could not jumpstart the repair of these cabins, which are our biggest cash cow in the mm-hmm. state park system. So it's liter- literally taken us three and a half years or so um, to get the park, the uh, cabins back online. But we'll be an- opening them uh, in just a few short weeks, and we'll open it to the press later this week. Uh, they're beautiful. They're restored as they were uh, previously. They've just been open for a short time uh, right. after Katrina when right, they got right, wiped right. out again. So um, it's exciting to have these back online. Fountain Blue State Park in, in St. Tammany is mm-hmm. uh, you know one of our biggest cash cows, one of our most popular and beautiful parks. And uh, these these beautiful uh, residential units have been out of commission for a while, so people will be anxious to get back in them. You mentioned Katrina and the damage done there. Here it comes. We're in August, and the 10th anniversary of that storm is coming up. And you know what I'm hoping? I'm hoping that the the anniversary is not totally somber. I mean, there were sad stories that went along with the loss of life and people losing their businesses and people losing their homes. But I actually think one of the better stories to be told about Katrina has been the recovery 
the resurgence of New Orleans and how Louisiana has boomed back in so many ways. What do you think about that? I think that you will probably see it leaning more toward that celebration Mm -hmm. of of the recovery, the renaissance, the rebirth of New Orleans, than you will the more somber reflection. I'm certain, though, it will be an appropriate balance of both. I Mm -hmm. mean, it was one of the darkest days in Louisiana's history, and the the terrible loss of life is going to be remembered. People who will look back on that having lost material possessions, but more importantly, having lost loved ones, it is a 10-year somber reflection. But but even more so, and I think the bigger storyline is going to be uh, this incredible recovery that New Orleans has made, that Louisiana has made, uh, how bright the future is, the improvements that have been made in hurricane protection, the, the commitment finally of legitimate federal dollars coming mm-hmm. down here to do some things, the, the, the rude awakening that the Corps of Engineers got and that the public got about the, the, Absolutely. Uh, the poor workmanship of the Corps of Engineers. All that's going to be part of the story. But the biggest storyline, I think, is going to be we're back. We're back with a vengeance. Uh, we're back with a determination that's indicative of the resiliency of the people of Louisiana. What is um, What would you say is a part of the recovery that uh, has gone on that the public may not know about? I think the fact that more and more young people have either returned to Louisiana or moved to Louisiana uh, to be a part of the new New Orleans. Okay. I don't think that is something that people appreciate as much as, as they should in terms of how uh, the city has bounced back and become an attractive destination for young people mm-hmm. uh, as a as a place of employment, as a place that they want to live, a place where they can enjoy uh, the great diverse culture of Louisiana. I think that's somewhat of a hidden story. You know, you think about all of the people who have been lieutenant governor recently in recent history. Kathleen had that job. Kathleen Blanco, who went on to become governor. Mitch Landrieu, who's now the mayor of New Orleans. Uh, the profile, I think, in, in many ways has been lifted with you being in that job because of some of what's going on from Hollywood to everything. Tell people what you do on a day-to-day basis. I run the department to, to start with. From an and admi- we talked about the parks and everything, but, but right. what else? Yeah. Well, from an administrative standpoint, um, I'm in charge of the department. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, I've, I've chosen not to have a secretary of the Department of Culture, Recreation, and Tourism. So I've assumed that, that uh, managerial role along with a, a couple of very capable and able assistants, a, a lot less employees than we've ever had in this department <laughs> right. that we have now. But on a, on a daily basis, I'm dealing with the administrative matters that, that uh, affect the, uh, the whole department. Um, and, and I'm involved in, in a number of speaking engagements and opportunities to go places and represent the state, yeah. uh, in, in places all across the state uh, for the most part. I, I travel some out of state, but it's really not that frequently anymore. Uh, but uh, managing that department and dealing with the uh, HR aspects of it and also dealing with the policy decisions that need to be made regarding the expenditure of funds in mm-hmm. parks, museums, uh, tourism, the arts, uh, the State Library, and Volunteer Louisiana, as well as the Seafood Promotion and Marketing Board, a lot of different uh, pies that I've got to have my fingers in. So the, and let's talk, we talked about the the Hollywood. I mentioned that in the question. I was, I was telling you as we were walking in here, I was just with Patrick Mulhern, who runs Celtic Production Studio here in Baton Rouge, and he was talking about how it's kind of in a, delicate situation right now because of what happened in the legislature he he still sees the great potential of what they're doing but is nervous about how the industry is going to react to it your thoughts well patrick and and others who uh, represent entities that have made significant capital investments of course are very nervous mm-hmm. uh, because they've they've built these beautiful facilities and they've got to have people who come in and spend money there right and so his concern is well founded 
I've spoken to about 10 different uh, executives in, in Los Angeles over the course of the past month and a half, uh, from the highest ranking people in major studios to people who do government relations for the studios, people who are producers and what have you. And the general consensus is we love Louisiana, we love the growth that we've experienced in Louisiana, we love the tax credits more, and we're going to be looking at places that make it most financially attractive for us to bring our productions. Having said that, most of them say the biggest problem that's been created is the back-end nature of the credit. Right. And that if we can correct that, and I'm committed to correcting that as soon as I get elected, that, that we need to correct the fact that this there ought to be a cap, but the cap needs to be known on the front end. Right. And you can't tell somebody, roll the dice with us, spend some money, and maybe you'll get a tax credit at the end. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing that is bothersome to the to the industry. They understand and have seen other states cap the credit. They understand some of the other nuances that have been changed in the law, but that's the biggest thing we've got to overcome. The, as is often the case in a legislative session, when you have a bill emerge from conference committee on the last day of the session, mm-hmm. there's not adequate time for the legislators to know what's in it or for the author of the bill to adequately explain what's right. in it and sometimes to even know what's in it. And right. I'm afraid that's what happened in this case. The bill got put together with so many different components and so much lobbying and negotiation on it. When it came out of conference, it actually has provisions in it that are more generous to the film industry than was the case before, right. which was not really intended. Yeah. And then there are other provisions that are punitive toward the industry that are giving them concern. So it's in, a, in many respects, it's the worst of both worlds. We, we gave more benefits to an industry we were trying to rein in, mm-hmm. and then we did some things that are viewed as punitive and, and uh, really detrimental to Louisiana's effort to continue bringing people to Louisiana. So it needs some modifications. It needs to be tweaked, but it, it was too generous of a cap and we, we have to uh, we have generous of a credit mm-hmm. and it needed to be capped and, and we have to deal with that will the industry survive here i think it will um it's gonna you're gonna see some uh, hesitation right now on the yeah. part of industry making commitments for future projects that may have otherwise come here um but general sense is we're not going to abandon you louisiana right. right off the bat particularly because they know there's a governor's race going on, a legislative race is going on. There can be changes made as early as January, February of next year. And I think they're willing to see if, if Louisiana is ready to make those changes. Your thoughts on the way the, the legislature handled the business of budget this past year. Because going into this, we knew we had a $1 billion budget shortfall, closer to $2 million when you looked at everything. Your, your view of how they handled it? Well, first of all, you've got to recognize that it was an unprecedented situation mm-hmm. to have a governor basically say, here's the problem, you fix it. Yeah. And, and to basically wipe his hands of it. Uh, and that's what happened. I mean, there was no leadership coming from the governor, from the first right. floor all, as to what to do. He basically said, here's the problem. This is the way I did it in my executive budget. Y'all do with it what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're leaving the legislature to its own devices. And, and the legislature generally needs some guidance from a chief executive who is going to help steer things in, in the way they ought to be. The result of this void was that you had a House and a Senate who were not always on the same page, and usually aren't, on exactly what has to happen. Right. And, and the end result in the, the motion picture tax credit legislation is a classic example of this. The, the, the challenge facing the legislature on the last couple of days, we need $70 million. Mm-hmm. Let's go find $70 million out of the motion picture film tax credit. What do we need to put the cap at to get to $70 million on the books so we can have a balanced budget? That's how that number came about. 
Uh, that's not the way to legislate. That's not the way to figure out what right. your credit ought to be. Uh, the the final product, in my view, is a six-month budget. My I've had to modify my earlier statements that we would start trying to think long-term about fixing the structure of Louisiana's budget in January of next year. I think that's going to have to take a back seat to a special session that in all likelihood is going to have to deal with a shortage in the current fiscal year that just began a month ago, July yeah. 1. Yeah. I'm afraid that we are not going to have the financial resources to accomplish what the budget contemplates um, through June 30 of next year. So we may very well be in a special session to have to deal with mid-year budget cuts that happen even before the middle of the year. How could it get so bad when Governor Blanco left a billion-dollar surplus when she left office? This is after both Katrina uh, had blown through here and Rita and Wilma and those storms, and then, you know, the, the bubbling of the economic downturn that happened after she had left office, but you know, the pangs of what was coming were going on before we got to 2008. How could it have gotten so bad? Well, go back and remember that in the post immediate post-Katrina world in Louisiana, there were huge amounts of money coming FEMA Louisiana. money, federal dollars, so yes. So you become yeah. dependent upon yeah. a, a windfall that is coming your way. Yes. That, that's the starting point. Um, the governor, both Governor Blanco and Governor Jindal presided over a repeal of the Steli mm-hmm. law that, that – erased a significant amount of uh, income tax that would have been coming to the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, This current governor began a systematic pattern of using one-time money for recurring expenses. Right, so as not to raise taxes. So as not to raise taxes and continually draining one-time pots of money that were dedicated for specific purposes, Mm -hmm. but during this administration had simply been rolled into the operational expenses of government. Throw on top of that the the recession that hit nationally and that That's affected right. Louisiana, and throw on top of that the downturn in the price of oil last year that was certainly unexpected to the degree that it hit. And all those factors put together answer your question as to how did we get in this mess? And it's going to take a lot to dig out of it. Do you have to raise taxes? When taking office? No, uh, I don't think you have to raise taxes uh, when taking office. And that's certainly not going to be my, my first order of business. I How think, do you get around? Where does the revenue come but, but, from? But let me let me answer you this way as well. I, I haven't taken the pledge that says I'm, see, not gonna, I'm not going to um, raise any revenue. Right. I think that's irresponsible. Yeah. When you take the oath of office, your oath is to the people that you yeah. represent. And I never signed on to that pledge when I was in the legislature. I right. haven't done it as a candidate for statewide office. So Not that I love taxes now because I don't. No, I understand. But, but what do you do? But you, you start by figuring out how much money do we need to spend as a government? I mean, what is it that we think is our threshold point mm-hmm. that we need to say to the people of Louisiana, this is the revenue stream that we need? And it may not be as much as what has been ballyhooed in the, in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and so realistically, you've got to start with that question. What is it we want to have by way of income, by way of receipts, in order to, to uh, be able to spend in an appropriate way that accomplishes the things you want to do for the state? Um, there are areas that we're going to have to talk about, and we're going to have to have this tough discussion as a state. And, and I'll, I'm hoping I get a chance to lead this discussion about what we want this state to look like, not four years from now at re-election time, but 25 and 50 years from now. What do we want our children and grandchildren to have by way of of a Louisiana? What do Mm -hmm. we want it to look like? And that's going to force us into a very significant and appropriate discussion that will touch on the issue of taxes. Are we going to need to do something to have more revenue in order to accomplish what we want? Um, and, and I think that's the that's the process that we've got to go through, I think, in, in analyzing the immediate problem that we're facing and then figuring out how we want to grow this economy 
by creating jobs and creating opportunities for people that are going to re, that's going to result in a more prosperous Louisiana and a better, more consistent revenue stream. And we can talk about some of the ideas that, that I want to see the state explore. For instance? Uh, for, for instance, uh, the recommendations that came out of Dr. Richardson's economic study uh -huh. that are also going to be the uh, uh, form the basis of a tax foundation study that is being done as we speak okay. and that will be rolled out here within the next 30 to 45 days with a series of recommendations for gubernatorial candidates, legislative candidates, and the people of Louisiana to think about. And what I like about where this is going and where I understand that I hope the Tax Foundation uh, study will, will ratify what Jim Richardson and others have said, we need to, first of all, rethink our income tax structure in Louisiana. It needs to be flatter. It needs to be simpler. Mm -hmm. It needs to be devoid of some of the exceptions and exclusions and credits that have been the subject of so much debate lately that create special benefits for special groups of people. Yeah. I want to see us actually reduce our income tax rates, both on the individual and corporate level, mm. and, and spread out the number of people who will be paying those taxes without the huge numbers of exceptions and exclusions and credits that are part of our system right now. And I you think suspect long that'll term, generate the revenue yeah, long yes, term? Yes, I do. And I think long term that'll not only stabilize our budget position, it'll have the potential long term to perhaps even raise more money, but do it in a more responsible, easy to understand, fairer way. How much money do we lose in the short run by decreasing the amount of income the state is drawing from those taxes? In theory, they'd be revenue neutral. Okay. When you start, and not in theory, as practicality, okay. it, would, it, would be, it would not be intended from the get-go to raise a huge amount of money or cut a lot of money okay. unless the, the leaders in this state and the people decided we need to have a higher level of revenue. Would the rate right climb now. over time? And if, if so, it wouldn't climb over no. time? No, so, and, and recognize these are this, right now. This is theoretical. Mm -hmm. We hadn't, hadn't hadn't seen this on on paper and how, sure. how it'll apply. But what I see, I like. Yeah. It, it, in, you would basically be lowering overall rates. You probably leave the brackets the same because right now we have brackets on your personal returns, and mm -hmm. when you reach a certain threshold, uh, you 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 go from uh, two to four to six percent. Right. And one of the proposals would take it to one to two to three percent. I mean, okay. basically reduce those rates in half. Corporate income, you'll have a lot of discussion about as well. It's not as big a part of the pie as is the personal income tax right. return. But right now, the highest tax rate for corporations is 8%, significantly higher than any of our sister states in the South. Right. The proposals, I think, that are going to be forthcoming would either lower those rates, just as we did on individuals, or have a single flat rate across the board, be it 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%, whatever it may be, something less than 8%, but corporations don't get all the exclusions, exemptions, right. and credits that right. are now on the books. And and all those are going to have to be looked at very carefully. They've all got a constituency, obviously. You've right. got people saying, I want to keep mine, go mm -hmm. take his. And, and you're going to have to lay them all out there, evaluate what their impact has been for the state, evaluate what they can do for the state in the future, both from a revenue standpoint and an economic development standpoint, and be very smart about how you restructure and stabilize the tax system in Louisiana. But I believe it can be done. When people talk about shifting the priorities of the way that taxes are taken in, either on the corporate level or allowing people to have more of their money, the practice has often been, because Governor Jindal did this, either an us versus them or a you versus them kind of approach, which makes it acrimonious and, and it's hard to get anything done because now you're feeling personally affronted. 
How do you present this in a way that doesn't create that same atmosphere? The way that the proposed tax reform was presented by the governor a couple of years ago did exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It was done to a large part behind closed doors. There were people involved in the discussions, but it was suddenly announced this is the way it's going to be. And then there was so much pushback Mm -hmm. that on the first day of the legislative session, the plan was abandoned and there there was no discussion about it whatsoever. Uh, You've got to involve people in the discussion at every step of the process. You've got to get input from the people who are going to be paying the tax. Um, You've got to bring people to the table. This is part of what I've been talking about in this campaign. Now more than ever, what we need in Louisiana is somebody who has the ability to bring us together and not pull us apart and not divide us by political party, by race, by geography, by all the different things that tend to divide us. And and that's what happened in that situation a couple of years ago. That's what has the potential to divide us going forward if we don't have the right person who people have confidence in mm-hmm. that is going to do things fairly, objectively, uh, with an agenda pointed only toward what makes Louisiana great, not what makes me as governor great, not what makes a Republican Party great or the Democratic Party right. great, but what makes Louisiana great. And that's the focus that I'm going to have. You know, I saw a poll for a client, a statewide poll. I, w- I won't say who, but it, it it looked at a number of factors. The governor's race, a lot of education reform issues, and in particular popularity. And it compared the president's popularity uh, to Governor Jindal. And the president, as you know, has been the case for a little while now, po- polls higher than Governor Jindal in popularity. But Governor Jindal's negatives are even higher than Mr. Obama's here in Louisiana, in a state that does not have one single statewide elected Democrat, a state that is maybe the reddest in the country. So I want to move on, but but I'd like to sit there just to get you to give me your thoughts on that juxtaposition of the reddest state possibly in the nation. We've only got four and a half million people and the Democrat president being more popular than the Republican governor who's running for president. Well, it's not a position you want to be in if you're Bobby Jindal, obviously, and trying to sell your message nationally. Sorry for that long-winded question. And, and we understand that. But, you know, you use, you use the word juxtaposition, which yeah. is a word I've used many times during the campaign because that's what it is. People, we're hearing so much about the economic growth and the economic prosperity that we expect for Louisiana over mm-hmm. the course of the next five to ten years. Uh, but then all of a sudden the disconnect is, wait a minute, we've got a billion-dollar shortfall that we just had to deal with, and the legislature dealt with it, but they did it with these fictitious creations like the save tax or assessment, whatever it is, that is, is merely something on a piece of paper. It's, it's the least tangible thing you can think of, but it was absolutely necessary for the legislature to vote on that to balance the budget. I mean, it makes people cynical about government with good reason. And it was that kind of shenanigans that had to be created in order to pass a budget that the governor would not veto and that would give the governor some cover as he runs around saying how he hasn't raised taxes in Louisiana, which is, of course, about the most disingenuous position you can take because when people go renew their vehicle license fees, and it's a fee, not a tax. It is a fee. And they see that it's $68.50 instead of $18.50. They're going to say, this sounds to me like an increase. It is an increase. And and it is. And we've had to have increases. You have a billion-dollar-plus budget shortfall, how in the world are you going to balance the budget without increasing revenue? But it's smoke and mirrors. It is. So, so, you know, Jindal's not on the ballot this fall. It's going to be a group of Republicans and one Democrat. All right. Um, Before we get to the election, because I want to spend a little time there, like I said earlier, uh, 
Talk for me a little bit about your time as lieutenant governor in relation to Bobby Jindal being governor. How many days total have you been the acting governor of Louisiana over the last, you know, well, last, your term? Last year alone, I don't remember what it was. I, I, I think it's 140 some odd days. 140 some? What? Yeah, I think that's what it was last year. This year, uh, as of August 1st, it was either 77 or 78 days. Um, so so basically know, two and a half months as governor. Yeah, as, as acting governor. This year? This year. It's August. Yeah, it's um, it's going to it's gonna increase even more, obviously, for the well, balance well, of the year. I, now it makes more sense because he's actually announced that, uh, you know, he's, he's running for the job that he's been running for for six and a half years. So uh, you've been governor. That how, What's your relationship with the man? I mean, do you all get along? Do you talk at all? If you see each other at state functions, do you, are, is it cordial? It's extremely cordial whenever we, we see one another. And I, and I think it's genuine on both parts to, to be nice to one another. But obviously behind the scenes, we really don't have any relationship. I can count on one hand the number of times we've had a face-to-face meeting to talk about When's the about last anything. time? Uh, probably, the, probably before the legislative session to, to review some things about my budget, okay. uh, a meeting at my request. Um, but other than that, we, we don't meet regularly. It's something I'm going to I will certainly change. I'm going to have regular meetings as the governor with the statewide elected officials, if for no other reason than to say, what's going on in your shop? What can I do to help you? Is there anything you need to be successful? I don't view I don't view these other folks as as competitors. I view them as people who are wearing the same jersey, a Louisiana jersey, and that we ought to all be able to work together and at least communicate. And and I don't think this is any different than me and other statewide elected officials. I don't think sure. I'm the exception. I think right. most of the statewides would tell you they, too, could count on one hand the limited number of discussions or meetings they've had with the governor. That's not an effective way to govern. Th- th- this governor has been in a nonstop campaign mm-hmm. for eight years, yeah. and at some point you have to stop campaigning and start governing. And there's a difference between governing and campaigning. Well, that's not going to happen now. So the campaign is going on. You are running for governor. Uh, let's talk about it. How's it going? Well, it's going very well. I'm, I'm enjoying the, this, the uh, prospect of, of being governor and running to get there. I, I feel like I'm very well prepared for mm-hmm. what is going to be a very difficult job, given the background and experience that I've had at every level of government and, and having proven that you can be effective and honest uh, and serve with integrity sure. in, in any level of government and get things done. And that's what we need in Louisiana, a governor yeah. who's going to wake up every day focused on Louisiana and is going to get positive things done for the state. Fitter's got all that money. What do you do about that? Well, you don't do anything about it. I, I don't care how much money he's got. <laughs> uh, you know, he, it, it's multiple millions now. You might as well just keep adding to it. Right. Money is not going to buy this office. Right. Uh, and David will try and use that money to buy this office. And he and his uh, super PAC will, I'm sure, be after me because he doesn't want me in a runoff with no. him. And there'll be a lot of money spent probably trying to attack me in, in uh, false and inappropriate ways right. is what I anticipate. I've seen it before in other races. but. Mm-hmm. I've I've always been outspent in my statewide races. I've I've run four times, and three one out of, every time. One every time, three out of the four times I've had very significant opposition and well-funded opposition that outspent me two or three to one. Mm-hmm. When I was re-elected Secretary of State, uh, I didn't have strong opposition and I and I won very easily in that race. But otherwise, I've had tough races. I'm used to them. And I expect this one will be no different. What do you think about this? And it's not with everyone, but this this feeling of inevitability with Senator Vitter, that it's it's his to lose. He's the man. 
no speed bump along the way. Now, you and I have known each other a long time, and you're a competitive SOB. So when you hear that, what is your reaction to it? Well, I, I think it is an attitude that he is trying to uh, communicate to people that you might as well be for me because I'm going to be the governor, and that yeah. is not accurate at all. Yeah. And I think they're trying to create an air of inevitability, and I think there are a lot of people scared of the senator. He's going to go back and be a senator for at least another year, and, and he's got a reputation of taking names and, and remembering who's with him and who's oh, against yeah. him. And, and, uh, and I think a lot of people fall prey to that and, and feel like they're forced to have to either give or forced to uh, be supportive. But I know that there are a lot of people in this state uh, who don't want to see him governor as well. And for one reason or the other, some Republicans want to see him stay where he is to keep uh, being a voice uh, of, against the, the current administration. And others don't want to reward him as uh, what he's looking for as governor of the state. Do you think when you meet with groups like I was just at Celtic, I, t I said that to you. And as I was leaving, Patrick was showing me the a couple of the trailers with Hollywood trucks, by the way, didn't know they were that big now uh, that they have so many trucks. And I said, well, uh, on my way to, to see Darden for the podcast and one of the guys out there, I don't even remember his name. He said, tell Jay I said hello. And I run into that all the time. I mean, how does that make you feel that people are so familiar with you. And when they see you in public, they come up to you and they say, hey, I'm with you all the way. I just saw it with you the other day. What do you think about that? Well, it's, it's nice and it's very flattering to have people recognize you. And, of course, I've, I've been in office here in Baton Rouge for 20 years. Yeah. So people have been used to voting for me and seeing me. So I, I certainly... Uh, get recognized quite a bit around town and it's very flattering and it's very encouraging and, and uh, obviously I know that there are a lot of people out there who are helping me financially and helping me otherwise who want me to be successful in mm -hmm. this race and and I feel a very strong obligation to them to uh, to uh, try and do what needs to be done to make Louisiana great and to make Louisianians proud of the person that they've chosen to be their leader. How do you get Republicans and let's talk about the, the varied category of Republicans here, the Tea Party Republicans, uh, the fiscal Republicans, the evangelical Republicans. How do you get a majority of a multiplicity of all of the groups to come to the booth and yank the lever for you? You let them know what you stand for. You let them know what you've done in the time that you've been in, in public office. What are those things? Well, you know, I've, I've, I've certainly had a, a record as a legislator, a record as a council member, a record, a record is holding two statewide offices of getting things done, of being effective, of doing more with less, of being responsible, of, of not having uh, been faced with scandals or uproar about the way I've handled my job. Um, and, and I hope people will look at that and, and say that, that is, that's the kind of person that we want in this very challenging and difficult time to dig us out of the hole we're in right now. Mm -hmm. and at the same time, start building, not just digging out, but building um, as we go forward. And, and my appeal is going to be to all voters of Louisiana. I've, I recognize that to be successful, I've got to convince Democrats that they've got to be for that. me. Yeah. And I've got to convince Republicans that I'm their kind of guy, as I've been in every office I've held. And, and I'm going to be talking to anybody and everybody who will listen and hope and expect to put together a coalition of people who uh, believe that they ought to make a decision on the governor's race, not simply based on what letters behind your name mm -hmm. or where your hometown is, but who is going to be the best and most effective voice for Louisiana's future. How do you go get black voters, Democrats, specifically black Democrats? And, you know, right now, John Bell Edwards polls in the 20s and some numbers. He's been in the 30s. But it's my opinion that a big chunk of that is the letter next to his name because it's the only one up there among the other R's. 
How do you get some of those people to look deeper and say, you know, John Bell would normally be my guy, but I'm with Jay. Having very candid discussions with people about the race and about uh, the, the reality of what happens if it's a John Bell and David runoff. Or what happens if it's a Jay and John Bell runoff or a Jay and David runoff. David beats him pretty good if they're in a runoff, well, I believe. I think, I think there's conventional wisdom yeah. as well as polling Based upon data. what we've seen. I, I think there's conventional wisdom and polling data that says just that. That yeah. if, it's a, if, it's a Democrat, if it's John Bell and David, uh, then it's going to be difficult for John Bell to win. It's difficult mm-hmm. for any Democrat to win in this right. state. We saw that right in, now. in Mary's race. Oh, yeah. If, if Mary Landrieu couldn't hold on to her seat, right. um, even with the, the negatives that came to her because mm-hmm. of issues that were very unpopular in Louisiana, mm-hmm. that ought to tell a lot of Democrats that, that their standard bearer is not going to be able to win right now. now what, but what about the case that he's different? He's not Mary Landrieu. He doesn't have some of the other negatives or the baggage, quote-unquote, that she brought to the election. He's relatively unknown, so you've got to know people to dislike them and that also works against him too well, that, that he's unknown that's what i was going to say that's right that's the biggest thing to overcome is are you going to vote simply based upon the fact that there is a d behind his name people do that though and people have done that and and that's going to be an issue whether mm-hmm. or not people can be convinced that they ought not do that this time or that if they do that in the primary it is setting the democrats up for a defeat in sure. the in the general election uh, against Vitter. And obviously this is what Vitter wants. I mean, Vitter's going to be doing everything he can to have John Bell Edwards in the runoff and not me. How do you, but but spe- specifically, how do you engage, what do you tell minorities to get them to say, okay, I'll listen to this guy, people who are paying attention, not just blindfold, pulling the lever for the Democrat no matter what? I, I tell them the same thing that I tell any audience. And I mm-hmm. think it's important that you've got to be consistent. You can't go in there and pretend you're somebody you're not. I tell, I tell uh, people, I'm a Republican. There's no change in that. I've always been a Republican. Uh, I haven't always been the standard bearer for the party. I've beaten the chairman of the party and the former chairman of the party and the son of a former chairman of the party on on the way to my offices. I haven't necessarily always had the party's backing, and I, I don't have it certainly con- uh, conclusively this time. The party the party split between all three of the Republicans mm-hmm. in the race. Um, but I said, but you've you've been able to observe me for 20 years as a state senator, voting on difficult issues, handling committees, handling the, the state's budget as finance chairman. I'm, I'm the only guy in this race who's actually balanced the budget in good times and yeah. bad. And, and I said, you've been able to see the way I conduct myself and the way I treat people and the way I handle issues. And I'm going to be the same way as governor. You're going to have a seat at the table. You're going to have a voice. Everybody is going to have a voice. And that's the way I think you've got to govern in order to govern effectively. Uh, elections are about dividing people and setting people apart. Uh, governing is about bringing people together. Little things that have happened here uh, in Baton Rouge, obviously, you know, went to LSU. You've you served here in the in the Louisiana legislature representing parts of Baton Rouge. This thing with Baton Rouge High, uh, Hospital, Baton Rouge General, rather, uh, the, the Florida Street campus that saw the emergency room close. I still hear from people who are in disbelief that something like that could happen here. And the residual effect that it's having on Our Lady of the Lake has been immense, not always talked about in the media, but it's a big deal over there now. What about something like that, man? It's easy to understand what the general has done. They are, they are no pun intended, bleeding money That's every right. Month. It was I a mean, financial decision. It's a, a $2 million hit every month to keep that emergency room open because under the contract between the lake and the state, mm-hmm. uh, they get paid 100% for treating the indigent patients, right. and, and the general gets nothing. I mean, when somebody walks in the door of that emergency room, they're required by federal law to treat them, but there is no mechanism to get paid for that treatment. 
based upon the exclusive contract with the lake. So the general is forced to have to make a decision. Do sure. we keep losing money? Uh, do we shut everything down here? And, and I, I don't like what they did either because it is the first stop for, for many in the indigent community. It's closest to the North largest number of people right. who use the emergency yeah. room. Uh, and it's unfortunate. Is there a way out of it? Perhaps. It would take a, a renegotiation of the contract with the lake. It which is take, not likely, which right? Is, which is not, well, yeah. a renegotiation may very well be likely because of the budget condition of the state. Uh, oh. But the state has a lot of obligations out there to the private providers that are that are going to cost money. And, and those obligations were made in good faith. And we've got to do everything we can to honor them. But there also may have to be some room to th- rethink Um, some of the provisions of these various contracts. So I'm going to preface the question by saying I'm asking it out of total ignorance, okay? The, The fact that this happened is understandable based upon the economics, the financial situation. The general was left with almost no choice. You're bleeding a couple million a month. But this was moving in this direction for some time. And then there was an announcement, and then days later... The ER is closed in an area of Baton Rouge that saw a hospital close that kind of needed to go away because of the facility and people not using the clinic. Okay, you're in the governor's office. You see this thing happening. What do you do differently? Because things like that matter to people. The, the end may not change, but how do you how do you address it differently? You got to remember to to begin with. Now, this didn't happen as you described it. Just boom, there was an announcement a few days later. Well, no, no, no. But, I mean, but, yes, but, that's it. But so let me go back to that yeah. because the 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 state found eighteen million dollars yeah. to give the general months ago when they first rattled the saber about closing the emergency room. Okay, and that was tendered to them, and there was a I think a good faith expectation that would might be more money. Going forward, when mm-hmm. it became apparent there would not be any money in the new fiscal year budget is when the general decided we need to close the emergency room. Right. Um, you know, this is the case with a lot of things. If I'm governor, I'm going to be involved on in a lot of things. But that's what get-go. I mean. The public wasn't hearing that it's bad, 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 and it's about to hit the fan. That's what I was asking about. Not from the from the policymakers and the electeds, the public. It was announced to the public and in relatively short order it was closing. The That's people right. on the inside knew that they had almost no choice. There's no way you're going to hemorrhage cash like this in that part of town. But that's what's different. People felt like they were left unprotected by a decision that may have been inevitable, but they weren't prepared for it. Well, I think that's right. And I think people didn't want to want to believe it was actually going to happen. But, it, I mean, as soon as this deal was done, you could almost figure out going down the line the general is not going to be able to sustain mm-hmm. an ER at that location if they're not getting paid for treating the patients. And, you know, we can go back a number of years. I mean, there, there are lots of what might have been in, in right. this whole scenario. The general was in a position when I was in the legislature a decade ago where they could have been the alternative hospital to Earl K. Long, and they didn't want it at the time. So, yeah. you know, we, that, that discussion took place as to whether the Mid-City location would become the new Earl K. Sure. And it didn't happen. The general didn't want it at that time. And this, the lake had no interest at that time in, in indigent, indigent patients. But how things change after a decade or so. And then now when this public-private partnership was developed, the lake was now in a position where it said, yeah, let's do this. And the general was not. Um, it doesn't change the fact that we don't have an ER at Mid-City anymore. Uh-huh. And there, there are a lot of factors that have to be addressed. There, there should have been an educational component that didn't happen rolled into this to make people aware 
that you need to go to the to the lake now for your emergency room needs. And yeah. There needs to be a, a better transportation component of how to get there. Um, and there needs to be, as we're, we're slowly getting to, more clinics, more opportunities for preventive maintenance and preventive care uh, offered to, to patients who don't show up at the emergency room for non-emergencies, mm-hmm. which still happens uh, all the time. I want to ask you this. So I introduced you to Zoe, my intern, who's here, who's a fresh UNO graduate. And here's a question about that millennial generation. Zoe is a college graduate interested in the film industry as she snaps a picture of the lieutenant governor. For people like that, who are of a certain age, who have a fresh new degree in their back pocket, but they're they but they know what's going on with the news, because even if they don't watch the six or ten o'clock news, they have Twitter and Facebook. How do you keep her here? How do you keep people of her ilk here? You start by making sure the jobs stay here and that the jobs are created here. And it goes back to what we talked about at the very outset, particularly as it relates to the motion picture tax credit legislation. How do you sustain that industry, which has grown uh, meteorically uh, since its inception 10 years ago? I mean, who would have thought in a decade more feature films would be shot in Louisiana than anywhere in North America? Uh, so it, it's a tribute to the ingenuity and the entrepreneurship of Louisiana taking advantage of these very generous tax credits and, and creating an infrastructure. And we've mm-hmm. done that. And the infrastructure exists now with places like Celtic Studio and other yeah. places to make sure that we can satisfy the demands of Hollywood. It, it all starts to starts at job creation of making certain that you can have viable jobs to offer young people because the, the lifestyle and the culture uh, the attractiveness of Louisiana is better than anywhere else you could mm-hmm. argue. You have places like Austin or Atlanta, uh, other relatively popular places, Houston for young people, but there's no greater place to be young and to have an experience than in Louisiana in terms of attractions and culture and food and music and, and everything else. I'm going back to my salesmanship. My, Gushing my, over putting, Louisiana. Putting my, you got me fired up, man. Putting my hat on of saying you need to come to Louisiana, but, but it's true. And, and you know what's also interesting? More Louisianians live here yeah. that were born here yeah. than any other state in America. You know, you talked about Louisiana, and, and I mentioned Zoe and graduating from UNO. What about higher ed? Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about Common Core, because I'll be honest with you, it is an on-the-shelf issue now based upon what happened in the legislature, and we'll see what goes on. But we cannot ignore the fact that higher ed in Louisiana is not where it needs to be. That education system, period, is not where it needs to be. You're the candidate that supported higher standards. Let's talk about your, pos- your position and philo- uh, philosophy on education in Louisiana. Well, higher education has been largely ignored as a top priority in the past several years. There's yeah. no question about that. It was, yeah. it was put on the chopping block, offered up as the sacrificial lamb to make sure that there was revenue approved by this legislature. Mm-hmm. If you don't vote for le- additional revenue, you don't fund higher ed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting carrot stick approach. But if higher education is truly the priority that it ought to be in this state, then you have to do everything as a governor to say, I'm going to fund that before we do anything else. It's the most important priority. It's not the thing I'm going to put on the chopping block right. if you don't vote for this or that. Um, so you got to start with that basic premise. If something is a priority, then it ought to be reflected as a priority in, a, in an executive budget. It doesn't have a protected source of income. There's yeah. no question about that. Right. But there's an awful lot of general fund dollars that are available to fund government. And if that's the priority of government, by gosh, let's make sure that gets funded first. Charter schools. 
What do you think? I think they're I think they're a great addition to the mix in Louisiana. I'm a, a supporter of charter schools, type one and type two, and and believe they ought to continue to exist. They ought to be supported. They ought to flourish mm-hmm. and create opportunities uh, that that parents take advantage of for their children, particularly those in disadvantaged situations. People sometimes don't understand that charter schools are public schools. Right. I've had the discussion with people. They're public schools. They're public dollars. Well, charter schools is one thing, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I do think we should make sure the standard is stringent so that people who are trying to get these charters are not shysters who just want the money. I agree. And, and, and there probably needs to be some work done in strengthening, strengthening those standards that are applicable. And I, I agree with you. When you're spending public dollars on public schools, be they called type one, type two charters, then they ought to be held accountable for the public dollars that they receive for producing the type of students that they indicated they could and would produce when they received their charter. Would you support John White's return? Uh, I'm not going to talk about uh, what I would do regarding any personnel. Come on, I'm going to tell you why. I'm I'm not. I'm not going to say I'm I'm promising anybody a job or I'm hiring anybody uh, in a particular position. That's a Bessie decision. Uh, Oh, no, no. The governor got overly involved in in making that the focal point of who would be on Bessie. Let me reframe the question. That is a fair a fair view of that. So let me reframe the question because I can't let you off the hook on that one. But you're right. That is a Bessie decision. Would you support John Wright, John White's return? In other words, people are going to come to you and ask you, even though it's going to be something that Bessie will decide. And the Bessie elections are this fall as well. That's a big part of what's going on. If asked by citizens and the media, do you support his return? What would your answer be? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to take a position on his return right now or not until I have an opportunity to really sit down with him at some length. I've had one meeting with him uh, as a as a as a candidate for governor or yeah. as a, a guy who's been involved in things. I want the input of what Bessie's got to think. Sure. I mean, you're going to have those people coming back to Bessie who are reelected. You may have some that don't come back. And, and I'm not going to say that I'm that as, as governor, John White's going to be superintendent or John White's not going to be superintendent. We've got to have a lot of discussion. But hasn't he done he's enough to, very, ret- to earn been, a return? He's been very controversial, but he's also been uh, very good in many respects for where Louisiana needed to go in its educational system. I think the guy has, has earned a return every no no policy person does anything perfectly. And so often we, we treat people in these positions like they have to be perfect from president to governor to senator to whatever but i man he's had some tough challenges fighting the administration that put him in there and i think he's earned a chance to at least see through some of what he has started i think he really cares about the kids he talks about the kids and again controversy has been there and it's not been perfect but i think he's earned a return for me but i'm not on the bessie board so well, I think the fact that he's still here and has not left for another job, and he may be, I don't, know, I don't know if he's looking or not looking. But I think he wants the, to be here. The fact that he's still here uh, obviously speaks well when, when he's in a situation where basically he was abandoned yeah. uh, by, by the governor yes. who, who put him there and who was philosophically aligned with him until it became politically expedient not to be. So, And he even spoke up against the governor, which could have put him in peril politically here at a time that Jindal still had that stroke. To me, I want someone in there that's going to stand up for what they think is right even when it costs them everything that matters because so often as you said earlier people get in these positions eh, you know they're going to stick their finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing before they tell you what they think and I just think in this regard the man's at least earned a return Um, that's just my two cents about it what about 
you know, coming back to the economy of Louisiana and industry, if you had to say on my dartboard, there are two or three industries that I'd like to really go after that aren't in Louisiana that I think would flourish here, what would they be? Well, I would say I'd have to say some that are that are here in somewhat of an infant form. Okay. Uh, the digital industry right now is one that has huge upside potential and growth, I think. Uh, we have an, an interesting credit that's on the books right now that's not been fully taken advantage of uh, that I think we can we can reach. It's somebody we want to go go target. Um, I think the uh, the bioinnovation kind of efforts that are underway in, in New Orleans, particularly mm-hmm. with the new hospital, create a huge potential marketplace for us. And and we're way behind the curve on that. We New Orleans could have and should have been the Birmingham and the Atlanta of the South, in, yeah. you know, decades ago. But yeah. we we missed that opportunity. But uh, this new hospital that's been built, and in, it may very well be overbuilt, and, <laughs> and uh, it may cost us a lot more money than we thought it would, but it is going to be a spectacular facility uh, for medical education, and I think creates some, tr- some great opportunities for New Orleans to finally capture the marketplace um, in, in the, in the bio-innovation area in the medical field. Uh, the other area where I think we're rich for growth is is with our port system in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we the Mississippi River empties into the Gulf only through the state of Louisiana, and we're blessed with that. And hopefully, with a, a coastal master plan that we can begin to start implementing and and ensure the security and the the well being of our huge port system in sure, South Louisiana, sure. that creates some some great opportunities for trade with Cuba potentially opening up, with yeah. the Panama Canal opening. Louisiana suddenly is in a position to, to see great new markets on the horizon if we're smart and aggressive and if we can convince the Corps of Engineers to dredge the river at New Orleans to 50 feet, uh, which is desperately needed, and, and I hope we'll, we'll see that happen. I hope our congressional delegation Uh, including our senators, will be in a position to try and make that happen. The most unpretentious statewide elected official I think I've ever seen. I say that because he he drives himself around and, you know, I've never seen him reach for a check when we've grabbed lunch. But, uh, you know, you weren't paying attention that time that I did that. What are you talking about? (laughs) Well, hell, it was 1988. No, I'm just kidding. Listen, how can people reach you if uh, if they want to know more about your candidacy, your campaign, or if they want to get involved or, most importantly, send you a check? Well, they can call me at 225-252-3040. They can go to the website, jdarden.com. Uh, they can mail a check to P.O. Box 2976, Baton Rouge 70821. And we'll link to Jay's social media sites. He's up there, and, you know, you take as many compliments and you get a few shots out there as well, but you don't shy from any of them. I think C.B. Forgotston waits on you to post something on Twitter so he can respond to you. <laughs> Thank you, Jay, for Thanks, coming Clay. in, bud. Have you ever wanted to host your own podcast? Coming soon, Clay Young Enterprises and Podcast 225 will be giving you your big chance. You'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment to create a podcast that you can be proud of. You'll have an engineer and a professional show open and close. The Clay Young Show is already considered one of the best podcasts in the state. Get the same audio quality and professional packaging for your very own podcast. Stay tuned for more details. Your chance to have your own show is coming soon. This is The Clay Young Show on Podcast225.com. Good talk with Lieutenant Governor Jay Darden. Great week. We'll be watching uh, what's happening with Trump as the week goes on. During the week, you can follow me on Twitter at ClayYoungBR and, of course, on Facebook, 
Clay Young, easy to find. You can also find my company's Facebook page, Clay Young Enterprises. And we always love hearing from you. So shout out with a tweet or a Facebook post. Let us know what you think about the show. Again, we definitely appreciate you guys listening every week. Have a safe one. You guys be safe out there and enjoy yourselves. And we'll catch you next time on the Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.